Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm your host, and we are joined by a great group today. We have Corey Shockey somewhere in Europe on a train, which evokes a kind of uh, romance of a bygone era, as Corey does on a typical basis. And in Vermont, um, we have David Sanger, um, uh, who is by a pond somewhere. And not too far away, we have Daniel Benjamin of the Dickey Center at Dartmouth. And then in Washington, D.C., um, we have Rosa Brooks. So we've got a great group. And I thought um, that I would start with events in the Middle East, uh, because today, uh, as we tape this, and of course, uh, uh, not too long ago, as you listen to it, uh, we had the opening of the U.S. Embassy uh, in Jerusalem. And we had an image that I think will be one of those that will sort of survive for some time, that may become a kind of an indelible image of people at an embassy opening event, celebrating, applauding, um, and side by side with that, uh, demonstrations uh, in Gaza, which produced 50 plus deaths uh, hundreds of injuries, uh, and continue this uh, uh, Israeli tough response to protesters on their uh, Gaza border. Uh, and it's a really a, a stark contrast, and it has produced stark responses from commentators uh, and just concerned citizens everywhere. Um, Rosa, let me start with you. As you as you look at this, one of the things that we've heard from the White House is this is all Hamas's fault. Uh, um, it's not all Hamas's fault, as usual. It's a bit Hamas's fault, but it's also more than a bit the fault of the Israeli government in choosing to, you know, I mean, this is this is totally predictable. It plays out all the time, right? Um, in in sort of one-upping it, you know, that sort of taking provocation and then escalating to a whole other level which in turn uh, triggers you know, new rounds of provocation, which in turn escalates. Um, I, mean, I mean, clearly Hamas was one of the organizations that <clears throat> encouraged people to go out in these protests, but alongside militants, equally clearly, there are plenty of ordinary Palestinians, including children, um, you know, most of them unarmed, who are there engaging in political protest. And, and obviously, it's a little too early to completely evaluate the the Israeli response. But I will say that that from a distance, it sure looks as though the response was 
significantly more dis more indiscriminate and disproportionate than it needed to be. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's tragic, it's awful. And you're right. I think that to me, you know, in some ways, one of the most appalling images is there's, you know, Ivanka Trump looking like Vanna White as she, you know, unveils this new embassy juxtaposed with these images of tear gas and smoke and dead bodies. And, you know, regardless of how exactly you end up and, you know, in the we, I mean, we, we'll spend the next we'll spend the next three years figuring out how precisely to proportion the blame for this, that, and the other thing. But, but the I think the the Marie Antoinette uh, slash Vanna White. I know I'm radically mixing my my images and time periods here. Uh, imagery of of Ivanka dressed <laughs> in this in this sort of you know cream colored dress like she's at a summer garden party or a wedding or something, uh, beaming as she as she attends this embassy opening while just a few short miles away, you know, people are dying is, is pretty appalling. Yeah, no, it is. And I think you evoke a good image of, of uh, Vanna Trump standing there uh, asking people whether they want to buy the vowels in the phrase human rights violation. Um, but Dan, you know, you were exposed as a counterterrorism official in the Obama administration uh, to Hamas. And clearly Hamas uh, has a, a, a very dark record. Uh, but it seems that the Israelis are saying, if you associate with Hamas, if you participate in a Hamas-sponsored <clears throat> event, if you are standing anywhere near anybody from Hamas, then we have the ability to exercise the death penalty without benefit of due process. Um, and, and it seems to me that's likely to produce backlash, but you're the expert. What do you think? Well, I think you're right, first of all, that this is going to be an iconic moment in the same way that there was that famous picture of a young boy being shielded by his father, uh, you recall, from the, uh, a place called the Nitzarim Junction for the second intifada. We could very well be looking at the beginning of the third intifada right now. I know there are a lot of uh, experts in the region who are fearing this. Um, Israelis have often felt that their security uh, depended on disproportionate responses. And uh, so this is not entirely out of keeping, but the numbers of people who have been killed and injured, we're looking at 50 killed and something like 2,400 injured. You know, these are these are really, really high numbers um, by the standards of any uh, uh, effort to deal with uh, mass protests. And so uh, at the one time you have Israelis celebrating, uh, you know, a, a recognition of their, uh, of their sovereignty in a sense, you know, they finally have their capital recognized by the most powerful country in the world. And uh, yet at the same time, uh, you know, the, the, um, incompleteness of their of their sovereignty, the fact that they're not really secure or fully secure uh, is being underscored in Gaza. And I think that, you know, the takeaway here is uh, is that the is the has been the bankruptcy of, of the Gaza policy for years. You know, for a long time, it was uh, uh, incremental steps forward or backward with the uh, uh, Palestinian Authority. Palestinian Authority doesn't doesn't control uh, Gaza. Uh, now and they've just ignored it and 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 you know this is one of the most densely populated places on earth 
and the situation has just gotten worse and worse. And so at this moment, that's supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a, one of uh, celebration, uh, you know, you have a nightmare going on. And I think it's time someone started thinking more uh, in depth about uh, Gaza. Um, do you, do you, uh, in, in, indeed. Um, David, you know, um, Trump, you know, has made a career out of branding. Uh, and following through on Dan's logic, um, it, he could end up with something branded the Trump Intifada. Um, and he has sort of owned this, uh, this, this act, this move of the embassy. He played it up. It is certainly the first time that a embassy opening was, you know, a major television event uh, ever, I think. Um, and um, he also played it a certain kind of way, which was hyper-partisan. Uh, there were no Democrats at this event at the U.S. Embassy, although it supposedly represents all of the U.S. Um, and so this really has this kind of Trump in-your-face political branding on it um, without seeming any sense of the potential consequences. Uh, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see some of those potential consequences to be. Well, I think you're right about the branding, because we've actually made a significant turn in Trump foreign policy. If you think that, uh, that 2017 was about either his walking away from things that President Obama did, the Paris Accords and threatening NAFTA and so forth, um, 2018 has actually been about taking some steps which, in which he will now own the foreign policy that results. So stepping out of the Iran deal uh, means that everything that goes forward in our dealings with Iran, good and bad, he's going to own. The, the meetings with Kim Jong-un, uh, which by and large I think they've handled pretty well so far, means that everything that happens in Korea policy, he's going to own. And once he made the decision to go move the embassy, while we can argue whether or not that decision prompted this or didn't, whether ultimately you would have had this kind of conflict in Gaza anyway, certainly the fact that they happened at the same time suggests that he's going to own this one as well. And that's a very different place than he was in last year. And it's somewhat deliberate, because once he brought in um, both uh, John Bolton as his national security advisor and Mike Pompeo as his secretary of state, he got people who reinforced his own instincts. And so now, rather than have a narrative of the president being held back by his team from doing the things he wanted to do, you've got a narrative of the president going out and doing things he promised to do during the campaign. And all day... The, the, the Trump supporters have been saying promise delivered on the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, that means as well, though, that he owns to a great degree what's happening with uh, the Palestinians. And the fact of the matter is, I don't think they've given that an enormous amount of thought. Um, and by the way, I've just received a, a note from Corey who says her train is, I don't know, you know, going through a tunnel or something, and she's not in great range uh, to to join in this particular round of the conversation. 
So let me go back to you, Rosa. Um, uh, I, I think if you take sort of David's point to the next level, um, we've, we're seeing something kind of odd here that I don't think anybody necessarily would have uh, predicted. And that is Donald Trump, at the moment of crisis in his presidency, or growing crisis in the presidency, is saying, let's do foreign policy. Let's do North Korea. Let's do Iran. Let's do the Israeli embassy. I think I can do better defending my status as president with these kind of bold moves um, uh, outside the country, because the Congress isn't going to do anything else, and I've got Mueller, and I've got Michael Avenatti and Stormy Daniels, and you know my staff saying horrible things about John McCain. I'm going to go off and even you know th this is not a president who was expected to do a lot in foreign policy, and he's now doubling down and he's doing foreign policy Trump's way. Um, and it seems to me this is going to continue for a while. And I'm just wondering what you think the outlook of all that for all that is. <laughs> well, as usual, David, in some ways, I think we're giving Trump more credit than he merits for any kind of planning whatsoever. Uh, I'm not convinced that he's even had a thought process as simplistic as that one of, hey, let's distract them with some foreign policy, as opposed to uh, more pure random spins of the, the Trumpometer or whatever. Um, but, but, you know, okay, let's say for the sake of the argument that, that he has decided, heck, I'm encountering some domestic difficulties, so I'll turn to foreign policy. You know, what are the, what are, what's the outlook look like? The outlook is not particularly bright. I mean, I, I share David Sanger's sense that, you know, in North Korea, things could go well, who knows? Um, but, but as usual, I, I'm disinclined to give him a whole lot of credit for it. I think it still is the old, you know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. If you, if you do things more or less on a whim at random, you know, eventually you're, you know, you're going to stumble into doing a few things right, statistically, sooner or later. Um, um, but I think that the, the, you know, the odds are not particularly in your favor when you conduct foreign policy by, you know, rolling the dice every single time or, or just deciding what to do based on what mood you're in when you wake up or God forbid what Fox news is saying that morning, um, which seems to be closer to the, the Trump reality. I, I mean, I, what's going on in the middle East is obviously extremely volatile and extremely dangerous right now. Um, and it's really, despite the continued and, and increasingly surreal rhetoric coming from the Trump administration about, you know, how we're going to bring peace to the region. Um, it, it, it sure doesn't look like we're uh, headed in that direction. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's an important point. You know, Dan, you spent a lot of time looking at, at this region and particularly the Middle East in particular, and I'd like to take the consequences of Trump doubling down on foreign policy uh, over the next month or two and, and and look at those. But you look at what's happened in the Middle East in the past couple of weeks, the past few days even, uh, with the Iran deal, where the response of the Trump defenders like John Bolton was, well, this was not a very good deal and we're out of it. Um, and, you know, Iran was dangerous before, but now that's not going to happen again with no sort of logical connection there. Um, and then this kind of thing, where they essentially... You know, this Hamas, you know, blame it all on Hamas line is the Israeli government line, and it's a very harsh line. It's There doesn't seem to be any effort at all to sort of speak to both sides or to suggest the U.S. has 
equities on both sides. It seems like the U.S. is sort of headed for a kind of polarizing, inflammatory consequences. And I might add, just in the mix of these whole things, that there was a uh, an election in Iraq um, o- over the weekend in which the one candidate the U.S. wanted most finished last, and, and the one candidate the U.S. was most worried about finished first. And I'm just wondering if that is a sign of, of, of things to come and what your thoughts are. Well, I think you're absolutely right about the polarization process. You know, let's let's start with the face-off between the Sunni Arabs, especially in the Gulf and uh, Iran. Um, you know, we have put all of our eggs uh, in the in the Saudi basket, if you will. And um, whereas the old uh, policy was to try to establish an independent position where you could sort of hold Sunni and Shia. Uh, at some distance and prevent a conflict, we are now uh, in bed, if you will, with uh, people who are uh, eager for a conflict. Mostly they're eager for us to do the the conflict, you know, for us to uh, take on the Iranians. And if, um, uh, you know, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, doesn't hold together, that is to say, if the Iranians pull out, or if the uh, Europeans basically cave for economic interests, uh, you know, I think we are on the road towards uh, conflict in the region and a conflict that everyone will expect us uh, to, to lead. Uh, I think there's an interesting connection here, too, with Israel and the Palestinians, because uh, although the Israelis had been feeling you know, pretty uh, emboldened by their new acceptance in the region by the Saudis and the Emiratis in particular, uh, because of the hardline stance, their mutual hardline stance against the uh, Iranians, um, you know, those countries could actually find that their domestic politics get a little more dicey. Now, not perhaps not so much in a small country like uh, the UAE, but in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, at just the moment when uh, the crown prince is really trying to uh, move uh, big areas of policy, he could find that there's some real blowback from people who are sympathetic to the Palestinians. I mean, it's sort of a truism that the leadership in the region hasn't really cared much for the Palestinians for a long, long time. But, you know, the larger populaces do. And this could uh, this could cause some real uh, tension there. And if we see, uh, you know, full-blown intifada, um, you know, I would not bet that you're going to keep hearing uh, positive things from Saudi and other royals about uh, about Israel's uh, place in the neighborhood and its rights to defend itself, as I think the Bahraini uh, king said the other day. So, you know, it, it's it it I wouldn't say it's a tinderbox now. That's kind of a, a cliche, but I do think that the tensions are rising. And the possibility for an awful lot of things to fall apart in the region uh, is growing. You know, it's it's still a mess. Um, you know, I have to say I'm always astonished at um, all the talk of uh, Iranian malign influence in the region. Uh, yes, there's plenty of Iranian malign influence in the region, but the U.S. has done a damn good job of setting up the Iranians uh, to exploit their position in the region since 2003. You know, what we're seeing is uh, yet another twist in the kind of 
deep American destabilization of the Middle East that began with the uh, the war in Iraq. And, uh, you know, I think there's good reason to be concerned. Yeah. And I mean, just to follow up on that, I mean, the the Sadr victory in um, Baghdad, even though he's not particularly visibly, you know, pro-Iranian, uh, led militias that were anti-U.S. and is a Shiite victory in Iraq, which has consequences in terms of the division of, of, of power within the region, which could come back to bite us in the butt. Yes, Dan? Uh, well, absolutely. You know, I'm reminded of a story, David may know this one as well, um, and it's a little apocryphal, but um, it's so good that, uh, you know, it should be retold. And that is uh, that um, at the time that the U.S. was planning the invasion of Iraq in 2003, or maybe it was 2002 when this happened, uh, a senior neoconservative official from the uh, uh, Bush administration flew to Israel to brief the Israelis on uh, what was coming. And uh, the, the, the story is that Netanyahu uh, was briefed and he looked at his interlocutor uh, and, and said to him, you are going to make the Shiites ascendant in the region? Are you out of your mind? Well, you know, uh, it was also Bibi who, uh, who was so sure we would find uh, WMD in Iraq. And well, anyway, uh, what goes around comes around. Yeah, well, right. It may come around further than we thought. Right. Just just continuing in the vein of Trump's big foreign policy offensive, um, David, I'd like to switch gears a little bit okay. uh, to the president's tweet over the weekend, uh, which was his first tweet in what may be a series of China first tweets, where he has expressed concerns about all the jobs that are being lost by Chinese telecom conglomerate ZTE due to US fines and sanctions on them uh, and said that he wanted to work to fix that. Now, there are two ways to look at this. One is you know, uh, just the contrast with Trump's uh, past you know, a, a, a theoretical focus on creating American jobs. Uh, but the other is the threat that ZTE poses, why all the heads of the intelligence community said they wouldn't buy products from this company. And I think, if you would take it a step further, the degree to which this likely has to do with try to curry Chinese favor prior to meetings with North Korea, in which the Chinese are going to play a big role. Well, I think there are three moving parts in this whole ZTE story, and it's a fascinating sort of techno-Cold War uh, kind of story, David. Um, there were th The first complaint about ZTE and the proximate reason that they were banned from getting American parts was because they had violated sanctions against Iran that were in effect prior to the Iran deal in 2015, and that they then lied about whether or not they had punished the people who had traded with Iran. So they got banned from using American parts for seven years, and that led to the, the furloughing of ZTE employees and the crisis that you see. So that's number one, and it's interesting that the president suddenly decided to go change his mind about the severity of this just days after he renounces the 2015 deal and says Iran's got to sign something better. 
The second way to look at it is that ZTE is one of those Chinese manufacturers who the U.S. government will not buy products from because they believe they're a security threat, and their Huawei and ZTE are in the same fit. If that's the case, it's hard to understand why the president would then turn around and say, well, let's strike a deal. Let's get them back working. Let's get them American parts if, in fact, you think they're a security threat. And then the third element is the one that you mentioned, which is, is this all just a bargaining card, both to get help on North Korea or maybe simply to get relief from farm uh, tariffs and so forth? And my guess is it's more of the th of, uh, from, from item number three there, that he was using this mostly for leverage. Well, I, Rosa, you know, as I hear that, I think first of all, that the president of the United States doesn't quite get it, that um, when he tweets out something like this, it's actually a concession. What, well, regardless of what happens, he's actually speaking on behalf of the Chinese and ZTE, and that's a gain for the Chinese and ZTE, um, in, at least in terms of the politics of this. But secondly, it just makes you wonder, how hungry is he for this North Korea deal? Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, consistent with this whole conversation. Let's make a big deal about the Israeli embassy. Let's do this thing with Iraq, with the Iran deal. He's just desperate to get distractions going on. And somewhere in his lizard brain, he thinks, oh, I'm going to get the Nobel Prize for all this. What does that cost? And, 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 and he, you know, this may just be the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> Yeah, that's possible. Um, I actually had a, a, a different bizarre insight, which I'm, I'm not quite sure is a is a accurate insight. But but I was thinking, you know, it's it's funny. You would think that an American president would be most inclined to make concessions and deals for you know people who appeal to the desire to play by the rules, abide by international norms, participate constructively in international institutions, um, whereas Trump actually seems to be animated primarily by the opposite impulse, which is to say the more, the more you act like a, a dictator, a thug, a kleptocrat, and a corrupt crook, the more he feels a desire to cozy up, which is to say that, you know, uh, whether it's... Uh, uh, populist neo-fascists in Europe, or whether it's Duterte in the Philippines or Vladimir Putin, uh, or most recently Kim Jong-un, he seems, you know, quite delighted to cozy up to them. And they can all be kind of, you know, corrupt thugs together and slap each other on the back, where he gets really irritated if anybody sort of shames him by attempting to suggest that we should abide by, you know, international norms or care about the rule of law. That that pisses him off. Um, which made me think, here's, here's my, <laughs> here's my quasi probably dubious insight that the, the Iranians in fact have been reading him totally wrong. You know, that they were in the, in the run up to Trump, uh, saying the U S is getting out of the Iran deal, Chikpoa. Um, they were saying, oh, but, 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 you know, international rules and agreements and treaties and principles. And, and that just annoys him. Whereas if the Iranians had sort of come to him and said, you know, look, as one repressive thug to another, you know, can't we work something out here? You know, let's share the profits. That that would have been a much more successful strategy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think 
Well, I, I, th there's always uh, wisdom, particularly in your darker thoughts. But Dan, as you know, as I was listening to Mike Pompeo talk about this North Korea negotiation over the weekend, uh, in addition to statements which I found um, unusual for a U.S. leader, you know, uh, that 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 say Kim Jong Un shared uh, the goals of the U.S. But it, you know, essentially, he he was doing or saying something that's kind of an extension of what Rosa was just saying, which is, um, look, you know, if they give us certain kinds of concessions, we will um, give them a lot of money. And you know, it, it made me think. You know, I think they may believe their own rhetoric on the Iran deal that we somehow gave the Iranians money when actually what we did was return the money to the Iranians that was theirs in the first place, which is somewhat different. And I was just wondering what your reactions to that were. Yeah, I, we're uh, we're in bizarro world here uh, between the uh, the ZTE case and the remarks uh, about, uh, both from uh, Pompeo and from Trump about uh, the North Koreans. I guess to, um, just to take up uh, Rosa's hypothetical, I think that the Iranians uh, were gonna be in the doghouse with Trump uh, no matter what, for two reasons. One is that the the nuclear deal was negotiated by Obama, and that is the worst thing that could ever happen, uh, you know, as far as Trump is concerned. So he had to he had to uh, upend that. Uh, I think with the um, with the ZTE deal, I mean, our European uh, allies are going to go nuts if we start putting. Uh, threatening them with sanctions for trading with Iran while we are giving relief to a firm that we tell everyone that they shouldn't buy from because of the security concerns and because and this is a, a firm that's being sanctioned for um, its uh, uh, breaking of you know existing sanctions on North Korea and and Iran so you know, everything is just so upside down right now that it's really um, kind of hard to make sense of. At the end of the day, I guess, you know, the Trumpies are relying on their confidence uh, that they can make everyone forget um, that um, uh, North Korea is the most repressive regime on earth uh, and that a nuclear deal will be such an extraordinary uh, achievement that we'll forget the fact that it's a state that runs concentration camps and and uh, you know randomly or wantonly murders its uh, citizens and whose whose uh, whose people eat grass. I mean, the fact that we've got a policy that's designed only to deal with the nuclear piece of it there, and that they trash the uh, JCPOA, which was focused on the nuclear uh, equation in Iran. Um, you know, you're just you're just so tied up in knots. I, I don't know how anyone gets out of this one. Well, it's, it's also, I think it poses a challenge uh, to, uh, this is not the most important thing, but it does sort of pose a challenge, David, to commentators, among others, as world leaders as well, because there is this tendency to look at these things and say, well, North Korea is a little bit like Iran, and so there should be consistency, or there are international standards or international norms or international law, or you said this last week, so you probably will say this next week. And Trump's policy on all of those things is, fuck consistency, fuck international norms, fuck what I said last week. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to see what I think it's a win. And if you guys think that that's inconsistent or whatever, the hell with you, onward and upward. 
it just it doesn't matter. I mean, it really seems like he's headed for North Korea, completely <laughs> mentalized from Iran. That he's just like, I don't care what I said about Iran. This is a different deal, and I could benefit from this one, and I couldn't benefit from that one. Well, it certainly does play to the thought that the biggest problem with the Iran deal was that it was Barack Obama's deal. Uh, but uh, I, I think that we've. I think the problem is actually even worse than the way Dan described it here. Because oh no, yeah, can you believe that, Dan? Um, I thought I thought I won on pessimism and no, you were you were, oh. you were, you were, you were Mr. Optimism here. Yeah. So, yeah. you don't you have no idea. Rose is just sitting there going, "You won on pessimism." <laughs> I know. Rose and I have been playing. Now I want to hear what David Sanger has to say. (laughs) Yeah, right. Go on. So, uh, so it was just a few months ago that we sat through CIA briefings, in which the CIA, under Mike Pompeo, said that it's their assessment that there is no price for which North Korea would give up its nuclear weapons program, which was certainly the sort of you know accepted wisdom in Washington for many a year. And that's still what I'm tempted to think. Now, the Trump people are doing one of two things. Either Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo believe that something fundamentally different is underway here, and maybe they're right, that Kim Jong-un has made, as Bolton called it over the weekend, a strategic decision to go into a different path, and that he's willing to give up everything. And that means the weapons, the production facilities, the scientists, the knowledge, uh, and of course the material in return for some promise that we're going to lead to their uh, economic revival. And my own personal view is that Bolton is right, that the example to look at here is Libya. The only problem is that when Kim Jong-un looks at Libya, he sees a guy who gave up his nuclear weapons in Muammar Gaddafi and about uh, a few years later found himself being pulled out of a ditch and hacked to death, which probably wasn't sort of part of the strategic plan here, right, for North Korea. So <laughs> so, so my, my instinct is that at this point, they're doing sort of rah-rah here to sort of say, we're, we've got it, we're, we're, this is the direction that Kim is going. And the problem is, if it fails, they're either going to sign a bad deal or they're going to have to try to claim that uh, they've gotten more than they have or they're going to have to walk away from it, which is, of course, the biggest risk when you've had a leader-to-leader meeting. Um, I think that uh, President Trump will be haunted by the terms of the Iran deal for a long time because if he could get, and I think I've said this on this show before, if he could get 97% of North Korea's fissile material out of the country, we'd all think that was a pretty impressive accomplishment. Well, yeah, that, you know, is based in part on the assumption that that Donald Trump knows what fissile material is, which I okay. think may be a, maybe a erroneous assumption. But Rosa, I'm, I want to give you the chance to explain why you are the holder of the um, heavy crown of you know entropy and 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 all things dark on this podcast but but let me just add one thing to sort of fuel this and that is in the discussions this weekend about the deal one of the things that um you know Pompeo seemed to suggest was um that 
what the U.S. thought it might be able to get out of this was the North Koreans give up, you know, some some WMDs, chemical or something like that, and you know their ability to hit the United States, and that that would be sufficient for the United States to then give a bunch of things to North Korea, which is precisely the kind of bad deal that everybody thinks maybe in 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 uh, in in the offing. Uh, and, you know, it is is light years away from even producing a deal that would stand up to the kind of comparison David's talking about. Yep. I don't know what I can add to that, David. You haven't left me much room for further pessimism. Um, well, I'm really surprised, frankly. I've always <laughs> thought... I've always thought there was always more room with you for pessimism. Well, I mean, there's always nuclear apocalypse. Um, I, I hold that in reserve. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I, I think that's right. I think that analysis is right. It's, it's um, you know, and, and how we feel about that obviously depends in part on, you know, a couple of, couple of things, which I, I could imagine people differing on, right? One, one is, you know, maybe you think... Well, it's okay if we get a bad deal because we think that even a bad deal, you know, ultimately, you know, helps bring North Korea back into the fold of, you know, international norms and so on. And so we actually think that they are interested in reform across a wide variety of, of areas. And so we, we believe that we can afford to have a bad deal on this because they'll just feel so so loved and embraced by this that they will become big softies on all of the other issues that we care about. Um, you know, maybe, uh, probably not, but maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, then another theory that you might have is, is just the, you know, he's a bastard, but he's our bastard, that the North Koreans are bastards, that we, we make a bad deal with them, which continues to give them a whole lot too much. Um, but that we don't care because we think that there are bastards and we think that even though they may continue to be evil in every other way, that they will be our pals uh, and they will do what we want. So it, it's not totally inconceivable to me that, you know, I, I'm inclined to think that both of those are mistaken, deeply mistaken. But I, I suppose I could imagine some theory in which, you know, if you if you believe one or one or both of those things that you could say even a a quote-unquote bad deal ends up being a long-term strategic win for us if you believe those things. So, Dan, how do they spin it? They come out of North Korea. You know, how do they spin this as positive? I Because it, it's really, really tricky, I think, in the politics of this, because the Trump administration seems to be betting that they can spend a month doing some of this stuff, come out on the other side, and then deal with the Mueller interview. And that somehow the glow of blowing up the Iran deal, putting this embassy into um, uh, Israel, and you know achieving you know Nobel Prize worthy peace in North Korea will help them through this this little legal hiccup they've got at home. But that North Korea deal doesn't seem. It seems like it's be really hard to spin that as a big win. So first of all, let's just stipulate for the record that. Uh, if you compare Iran and North Korea and countries that might have changed over time in terms of their behavior, their treatment of their citizens, their posture towards uh, the international community, that Iran was 
I would say, much more likely to evolve since it's sort of a partial democracy and since its leaders are clearly troubled by uh, domestic unrest uh, than North Korea has ever been. And so the idea of doing uh, a, a deal in which uh, one party surrenders nukes in return for kind of uh, a new economic lifeline that the deal made much more sense in the Iranian uh, context, also made more sense in the Iranian context because Iran didn't already have uh, demonstrated nuclear capability and therefore was not in the position that North Korea is in where they have one and it's the only thing standing between them and the abyss. I mean, it's their ultimate insurance policy. So this is all crazy to begin with. I think that they spin it to answer your question um, by having it vague. And so, um, you know, uh, Trump, who's, uh, you know, not exactly a maven for the details, goes and has a gauzy event with um, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, Kim Jong-un uh, promises to surrender in the next 90 days whatever, uh, you know, smallpox stocks he has or, or whatever in the BW and, and chemical weapons department. And then they're, they're going to leave it to their, uh, you know, to their really uh, capable senior aides to uh, come up with the modalities for denuclearization over the next five or 10 years, you know, so it, it, it looks more like, you know, the keto deal or something like that. And we'll promise them, well, we'll promise them oil, uh, you know, to, to replace all that nuclear power they're giving up. And I think that they spin it that way. I, I think the big uh, uh, problem uh, that they have in that scenario is that they may have internal bloodletting because it's hard for me seeing Bolton putting up with that. Because Bolton, you know, he wants, you know, they're they're just got a, a fundamentally problematic situation. Bolton, he wants clear cut answers. He, in some ways, he's kind of like, uh, you know, if you remember um, uh, Ehud Barak before uh, or at Camp David, I'm going to unmask them. I'm going to show them for what they really are. And that's, I think, how Bolton sort of views the whole North Korea thing. So uh, they've got a really uh, tense situation. I think Pompeo is completely capable of coming up with some uh, very vague agreement and kicking it down the road uh, for a long time for everyone's political benefit. Um, but, um, you know, a really uh, concrete deal, that's going to be tough to do. It, it, gets, um, it, it gets even harder, David, because... They have said, and you heard Pompeo say again uh, over the weekend, that they're not going to do this in the incremental way that previous administrations have because it hasn't worked. So, in other words, it's not going to be we. they give up a little bit, we give you some economic benefits, they give up more, we give you more. He says they've got to do full denuclearization first, and then they get the benefits. Well... You know, would you take that deal if you were Kim Jong Un? And so my guess is they're going to have to back off that at some point. And uh, you could have a fairly rapid, symbolic set of denuclearization steps: shipping some nuclear weapons out of the country, closing down a few facilities. But it's going to take a long time to figure out how many nuclear weapons they have, what proportion they've given up, what they've actually closed down. Yeah. Well, I guess. I guess from their point of view, all they have to do is keep it vague for six months, right? Just that's right. Keep it vague through the election and say, oh yeah, world peace here, world peace there, world peace everywhere, jobs being created, everything's fine. Um, and Mueller is a nuisance and 
and then they win and nuclear apocalypse, right? I, you know, I don't, you know, I, you could end up with a nuclear apocalypse, not to answer for Rosa, but, you know, so, uh, but maybe the answer to this is that um, all the North Koreans and the Chinese really want is the status quo. And so all the North Koreans have to give up is just enough here that everybody's convinced that Donald Trump is not going to uh, bomb them. And I think they think they can get more than that, don't you? I think they think they can sort of create via the means that you just described, the illusion of progress, get some concessions, get the U.S. to draw down some capabilities, maybe get some economic infusion, and actually do the exact same thing that all the other past deals did, but worse. Could be. Could be. I mean, you know... We, we have, it's a very different nuclear program, so they need to get vastly more than they got from Iran. And uh, that's what makes this such a high bar to, yeah. to be able to try to... I, to I think that silence you heard was uh, was Rosa heading for New Zealand. I, I think her, her uh, gloominess has gotten to her. Yeah, no, well, that's typically where Rosa heads at the end yeah. of each episode, and then we lure her back. Um, well, I, I get. I think she's sort of dropped off, and I'm going to uh, thank her for having been here for for uh, the podcast. And Corey's train just went off into oblivion there, so uh, hopefully we will get her back on some future podcast. Uh, Dan, thank you for joining this uh, uh, first podcast that you've ever joined for us. Uh, thank you, David, and thank you very much for joining us. Bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find